0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode seven in our Thessalonians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Revelation of the Glory of Jesus Christ where we'll discuss 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today?
1: So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, is set in the context of intense persecution, The Thessalonian Christians were being persecuted by the same people who made life miserable for Paul and Silas when they came to preach the gospel there, and they remained and made life miserable for the church. Mm. And Paul is here encouraging them and urging them to continue steadfast in their faith, to not be, uh, be intimidated by the persecution that's going on. And specifically in this chapter, more than anything else, he's going to talk about about what the future looks like for the enemies of the kingdom of God and how terrifying it will be Mm. for them when Jesus comes in his glory with his holy angels and the uh, overwhelming wrath that will be their portion, not just on that day, but for all eternity. And so these are actually some of the most terrifying verses of warning there are in the entire Bible on the eternal condemnation and wrath that comes on the enemies of God. It's a warning that evangelists need to keep in mind as we share the gospel with people and as we urge people to repent while there's time and to flee the wrath to come. This chapter describes some aspects of the wrath to come.
0: Well, as we continue our Thessalonians Bible study podcast and we venture now into 2nd Thessalonians, let me read chapter one so that we have a sense of where we're headed today. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. After beginning with a nearly identical greeting to the one we discussed in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says we ought always to give thanks to God for the spiritual growth of others. Mm. Why is that?
1: Well, because he believes that God is ultimately responsible for it, and it's a great statement on the sovereignty of God. All salvation is in God's hand. All salvation is initiated by God's sovereign grace. And so in Paul's way of thinking about it doctrinally, when he sees someone become a Christian, he thanks God for them. And when he sees someone grow, even in the slightest amount as a Christian, he thanks God for that. Because all things come from God. All things, all good, every good and perfect gift, James said, is from above. Every gift of grace comes uh, from God. And so he gives thanks to God because they are God growing in their faith Uh, and i think it's important for us to realize we grow if god wills that we grow as the Mm -hmm. author of hebrews said you know let us go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death etc and all the milk things and and god permitting we will do so Mm -hmm. so a very strong statement in in hebrews six if god wills we will grow And so uh, the same thing here, Uh, he gives thanks to God for the growth he sees in other Christians. And I think, I just feel like thankfulness is one of the most important disciplines in the Christian life. I love being around thankful people. Mm. I love being thankful myself. And if we really believe this doctrine that we've been talking about the last minute or so, um, that the development in other Christian brothers and sisters is directly attributable to the grace of God, we could be thanking God all day long for things.
0: Absolutely. Well, how should the idea of our Christian faith increasing both encourage and challenge us ourselves?
1: All right, so faith is not static, it's a living thing, and we can have more faith now than we did a year ago. We can have even more faith a year from now than we do now, our faith can grow does it mean for faith to grow? This is a bit of a mystery because Jesus' di- disciples came and talked to him about this exact issue. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Mm-hmm. And he said, I tell you the truth, you have faith like a mustard seed. You can say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and it will be done. So that's strange. Um, is he denying that faith can grow? No, because he frequently called his disciples, oh, you of little faith. He clearly wanted to challenge them to have more faith. So I think faith is something that can grow, it can develop. Um, It is a perception uh, and uh, the eyesight of the soul, by which we see invisible spiritual realities—past, present, and future—the uh, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen—we can have a stronger assurance of things hoped for, and an even more vivid conviction mm. of our sins and of other things, things not seen. We can have an even more vigorous reliance on Christ in prayer. We can we can be men and women of faith. And so, according to this verse, the Thessalonians' faith is growing; they're stronger in the faith now than they were a year ago. So they're again in a context of of intense persecution. Their uh, likelihood of apostasy, their likelihood of of flickering and wavering and being easily moved is less now than it was a year ago. Mm. They're more established and founded on Christ than ever before and he's giving God thanks for that.
0: Paul also says that the love they have, every one of you for one another, is increasing. What is the relationship between the one and the all in a healthy local church?
1: Okay, so uh, fundamentally the idea here is that they are loving each other more than they did before. And uh, the, the love that they have for, for one and the love they have for all Christians is growing and developing. Um, re- read again the translation. I'm working with a little different translation. What does yeah. your say?
0: So verse three says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Okay,
1: yeah, so there's a concern for every individual Christian. We wanna be certain nobody's lagging behind, nobody's getting left behind. Uh, and we want to make cert- certain that each of them is growing and developing in the Christian virtues. And one of the most important Christian virtues there is is that horizontal love we have for one another. Uh, this is very important in the epistle that Paul writes or that John writes, First John, uh, that we cannot claim to love God whom we have not seen if we don't lo- love our brothers and sisters whom we have seen. So their faith is becoming more ardent for each other. They are, are more committed. There is a, the, uh, a more intense affection they have for one another. And I think persecution will do that. These folks are going through it together, kind of like World War II and the Band of Brothers. Mm. Go through the, the D-Day landing and you barely survive, but you survive together and you're fighting for each other, et cetera. It, it draws you together. And so these folks are under intense persecution and they really intensely love one another and so their love for each other is growing
0: more and more. Paul goes on in verse four to relate his boasting about the Thessalonians. Given that Paul clearly ascribes the spiritual gl- growth of the Thessalonians to God because he thanks God for it, mm-hmm. how should we understand the boasting in verse four and how is their endurance in persecution clear evidence of the genuineness of their faith?
1: Well, just because we give God ultimate glory and ultimate causality for everything in the world, ultimately all good things come from him, that doesn't mean that we don't praise each other for good things that we do. That doesn't mean that God himself doesn't say, well done, good and faithful servant, and then give rewards and honor individuals for sacrificial service. And so Paul, by boasting about the courageous little Thessalonian church in a cauldron of persecution, where he had to go out and Silas had to go out you know, at midnight or in the middle of the night to escape a a mob of bad characters from the marketplace and and a and a, a, a riot that was I mean that's they escaped they left town but the Thessalonian church those folks had to stay there but they they instead of getting swept away in cowardice and unbelief they're standing firm for Christ. Mm. Well, these words that I'm saying right now, I could see Paul saying them to people from other churches, you know, the Galatians or the Ephesians or the the Athenians or the Corinthians. You know, he can say, let me tell you about that little church. He does the same thing in Corinthians about the Macedonians. Mm. Remember how he boasts about their giving and how amazing they are? And he said, out of their intense poverty, they gave far beyond anything we ever thought that, that he's boasting about them. And he does that because it was they themselves that did the giving. Mm. So these Thessalonians, they are the ones who are doing the courageous, standing and the persevering and the loving. And so he boasts about them. I think mostly as as setting an example for other churches to imitate.
0: Now verse 5 indicates the Thessalonians flourishing in the midst of persecution is evidence or proof of the righteous judgment of God. Hmm. Given that many Christians who are undergoing persecution and have suffered great loss are strongly tempted to question the justice of God, Hmm. what does Paul mean here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good way that you You frame the question, you know, does God not love us anymore? Mm -hmm. Is God not sovereign anymore? Here we are getting persecuted. We haven't done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, for the first time ever, rescued out of paganism, out of immorality and debauchery and wickedness, we're now living godly, upright lives for the glory of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're getting savagely persecuted. Where is God? Doesn't he love us anymore? What Paul is saying here is the fact that they are standing firm in the midst of this, the fact that they are only getting stronger, Paul says in Philippians, this is evidence uh, that they, the Philippian persecutors, will be uh, destroyed and that they, the Christians, will be saved. Hmm. The fact that all of those mighty, pounding efforts have not done anything to diminish the faith of this little band of brothers and sisters is evidence of the justice of God because he will never leave them or forsake them. And he's got more to say about the persecutors Mm -hmm. and the terrible future they can anticipate. So this is evidence of the judgment or the justice of God that he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if they really believe the the theology of thankfulness that we talked about earlier, they are standing firm because God has been good to them. Mm -hmm. They're standing firm because God hasn't forsaken them. They're standing firm because he has renewed and strengthened their faith. And that's evidence of the justice of God.
0: Since Paul would never assert that any human achievement can merit heaven, what does Paul mean when he states that their spiritual flourishing and persecution helps to prove them worthy of the kingdom of God?
1: Yeah, I think this might relate also to the book of James, uh, James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And it says also, a very, very difficult expression, but... Um, that Abraham was justified when he offered his son Isaac, and Rahab was justified Mm. when she sent the spies off in a different direction. The works validate or prove the reality of the faith. And so it is, I think, Judgment Day, everyone will be evaluated by their works, by their fruit. By their fruit, Jesus will know them, and by their fruit, he will present them to everyone else. And so the record, the track record of their actual behavior is proof or evidence that they are worthy of the kingdom of God. Uh, It is proof or evidence of the genuineness of their faith. Now, their worthiness ultimately must be the imputed righteousness of Christ. But that only comes by faith, and the faith must be genuine and not spurious. And so their willingness to suffer... Persecution proves the genuineness of their faith, and so therefore they will be counted worthy of the kingdom for which they
0: are suffering. Hmm. What justice does Paul promise on behalf of God in verse six?
1: Well, what he says uh, very plainly uh, in these verses is that he's going to pay back affliction to those that are afflicting them. He's going to pay back trouble to those who are troubling the um, Corinthian church or the uh, Thessalonian church. I, th- I think the the fact of the matter is the intense, perfect, spiritual union between Christ and his church. Christ never forgets that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?
0: Hmm.
1: And then sheep and the goats, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Whatever you did for one of these least, the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. And then sins of omission, whatever you did not do, you did not do for me, and they're condemned for things they did not do. Well, mm. how much worse would it be for wicked things that, they, that people did do to savagely beat on mm. Christ's body, to savagely beat on the bride of Christ, to put it mildly, highly motivates Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say the causal factor, the immediate causal factor for the second coming of Christ will be the vicious persecution going on under the reign of the Antichrist for the people of God, the elect children of God. That's Jesus' bride and he will come out of heaven with blazing fire to protect her. Hmm. So the justice will be at that point. You have beat up on my bride, I am now going to beat up on you. That's effectively what he's saying. He will pay back trouble to those who have troubled you.
0: So there's trouble for those who trouble, but there's also relief. Verse 7 mm-hmm. uh, speaks of a relief that's offered. What relief does God provide for his persecuted children in verse 7? And will that come at the same time as what you're talking about? When yes. will that come for
1: them? Well, we need to keep in mind a lot of the other verses that we learn. Matthew 24, also Mark 13. Um, Matthew 24 is called the Little Apocalypse, so we have a lot of uh, you know, eschatological teaching. And it speaks there of the great uh, tribulation. Uh, Those will be uh, times unlike anything that has ever happened from uh, the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Mm. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. God has shortened those days. That's how bad it's gonna be. In other words, the most savage, systematic, demonic intelligent, skillful, almost inescapable persecution ever worked on God's people on the planet Earth mm. has yet to come. It's, it's at the end. And so um, they will be crying out for deliverance, crying out for the Lord to deliver and rescue them. And when he comes, they will be relieved. They will be delivered. I do believe mysteriously in Daniel chapter 12, when there's a counting of days and we have that 1290 days counted out and the 1335 days, blessed and holy are those who wait for and endure to the end of the 1335 days. That's just straight mystery. There's no one who understands those numbers. 1290, 1335. It's not 1260, which is a time times and half a time or three and a half years, 42 months, all that. No, it's something beyond that. 1290 days. And then beyond that, another 45 days, 1335 days. We don't know what that is. But I guess it's the counting of days until the second coming of Christ done by those who are so terrified by the persecution, they're hiding in caves somewhere, they're mm. looking for some kind of relief and deliverance and they they have, they have cannot, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, Jesus said. Mm. Think about that. And so those people are counting the days until Jesus comes to deliver them.
0: What do we learn in verse eight about who will be punished at the time of the second coming of Christ? And what is the significance of the word obey when connected with the gospel?
1: Yeah, so we're, you know, this, this passage is amazing. Jesus is going to come in blazing fire, the text says, with his holy angels. You know, this is not a secret second coming. This is not, like a lot of people reading eschatological books like the Left Behind series and all that talk about a kind of a secret rapture and a secret, secret coming. The, the second coming is no secret. It's clear, visible, blazing fire mm-hmm. and angels. And so they're, uh, the, the Lord Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to punish everyone who did not know God and did not obey the gospel of Jesus. So this is the ultimate justice. Uh, they will be punished for not obeying the gospel of Christ, and that's a terrifying display of the wrath of God.
0: What are the different aspects of eternal condemnation taught in verse nine? And how does meditating on hell Help those who are being viciously persecuted?
1: Well, um, the doctrine of hell is taught in many places. As, as I've learned in my study in the book of Job, going through, the doctrine of hell is in no way clearly delineated or described at all in the Old Testament. I don't find it anywhere. There's maybe little glimpses here and there. But it was the Lord Jesus and then the apostles that developed the concept of hell as eternal conscious torment. And that's what we uh, are taught, that that the wicked do not cease to exist at death. As Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that there's nothing more they can do to you, but I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who, after the destruction of the body, has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, It also, quoting Isaiah, says, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, And so in this text, it says, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. So this is the the positive and negative aspect of hell. Now, positive, there's nothing positive about hell, but I'm saying what is happening and what is not happening. Hmm. So what is happening is punished with everlasting destruction. Now what does that mean, everlasting destruction? What it means is when it says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, it's when they've been there 10,000 years, not bright shining as a sun, but tormented, they've no less days to be tormented than when they first begun. Mm-hmm. It, and what that means is they're being, their bodies because the wicked and the righteous al- uh, both alike will, it's called the general resurrection, will receive bodies that will endure forever. God will sustain their existence in the fire. He'll sustain their existence in the destruction. So it's an eternal destruction. Most most of the time we think about something being destroyed, well, like the burning bush. You know how, what was amazing about the bush it was not that it was burning, it just didn't get up. consumed. Yeah. It just kept burning and burning and burning and burning. And so it is with everlasting destruction. Mm-hmm. So that's the positive. That is what, it, what is actually happening to them. I don't think I should use the word positive because it's misleading. Like there's, but that is what is happening. What is not happening is they're not with God. They are shut out from the presence of God. What that means is they could say, well, that's the very thing I want. I don't want to be with God. Well, again, quoting James, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Mm. So they're cut off from every good and perfect gift, everything they ever enjoyed in life. They Mm. say, I want to be in hell. That's where all my friends are going to be. Well, it may well be that all of their friends on earth will be in hell, but they won't be friends in hell. There's no friendship in hell. There's no fellowship in hell. There's no togetherness in hell. All those are gifts of God. So they're shut out from the presence of God. And they are not able, they don't have access to God as the source of every blessing that there is. There's no blessings left. It's terrifying. I think the more we we immerse ourselves in the doctrine of hell, the more we will be motivated to evangelize, to pray for the lost. But here the context is, Encouragement for those that are suffering persecution. Paul's clearly writing to encourage a persecuted suffering church who are under the dominion of powerful persecutors of what the future holds for those people. And so it does say, do not repay evil for evil, do not take revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Uh, You know, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In so so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Mm -hmm. I heard one teacher say once, well, keep in mind, coals were a good thing. You can cook on them, over them, and they warm you, and so you're just heaping blessings. It's like, that's not the context. The context is is wrath and judgment, Mm -hmm. uh, the fire here. And so, as you are kind to your persecutors, and they don't repent, they have even more to be accountable for on judgment Mm. day. And so fundamentally, this is an encouragement to those who feel utterly helpless. I do believe there is no worse situation on earth, physically, not spiritually, but physically. There is no worse situation any human being can endure on earth than being incarcerated by a sadistic torturer who finds ways to make them suffer every day i think there's no disease that's worse than that there's no poverty that's worse than that there's there's no earthly sort of situation worse than that Mm. and so i don't know everybody was experiencing that but imagine you're in a town run by the bad people they hate you and every day they're thinking of some way to destroy you or make your life miserable A, a Consolation in the middle of that is justice is coming, judgment Mm -hmm. is coming. Also the parable of the persistent widow, crying out for justice against her adversary. And Jesus sums it up by saying, you know, uh, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? He will see that they get justice and quickly. Hmm. So that's pretty clear. (laughs) So there is a comfort or consolation from being the powerless oppressed that the powerful persecutor will someday be judged.
0: So verse nine is uh, evidence and a picture of what's happening in hell and a means of encouragement that justice is coming. Mm -hmm. What does verse 10 teach about heaven? And how does Paul give the Thessalonians a sweet assurance of their own salvation?
1: All right, so the verse says on the day, second coming, he, Christ, comes to be glorified in his people. Hmm. Is that what you have? Glorified in his people. Verse 10,
0: I have glorified in his saints.
1: Or in his saints, okay. His holy people, here my translation has. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So glorified in his saints and marveled at. So I think Jesus is glorified in his saints by the fact that they love him, they follow him, they're trusting him, they're exulting in him. But their transformation from very ordinary looking human beings, aging, wounded, sick, you know, lame maybe, uh, et cetera, to being glorious in resurrection bodies, like Philippians says, uh, that we'll be made like his glorious body and Jesus has the power to do that. So we will be glorified when we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. So we will shine with the glory of Christ. So how beautiful, Wes, you will be, how attractive, how beautiful I will be, how radiant we will shine, Jesus will be glorified in his saints by our radiance and our beauty and our our sublime physical perfection and spiritual perfection. Glorified in the fact that we love righteousness like he does, conform perfectly to him. So radiantly putting Jesus on display because we're conformed to him so that he'll be the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8 says and marveled at. Now, you know I wrote a whole book on this, uh, which is the dynamics of heaven, of an education. I think we're going to, it's wave upon wave upon wave of marveling. We're gonna marvel at Jesus, right? Hmm. He's, he's coming back to be marveled at. Well, how marvelous is Jesus? More than you think. <laughs> How marvelous is he when we've been there 10,000 years? More than even we will think at that point. Mm -hmm. There's still more he has to show us Mm -hmm. and he'll never run out. He, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So forever and ever and ever he will be marveled at among his saints. How good is that?
0: That's so good. I have a chance soon to teach on those dimensions of God's love in Mm -hmm. uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And just think about that prayer that Paul prays, that they'd be strengthened to comprehend that and, and what it says, as I read that is, and we can't comprehend now, but we'll be equipped to comprehend then, but it still won't change the infinite dimensions of who God is and we'll be learning for all eternity. That's pretty special.
1: I love this, this is so good. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Mm -hmm. He's coming to say, aren't I glorious? And we'll be like, yes, you are.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Now, why do all of these issues, right? Persecution, perseverance, the second coming of Christ, retribution by God on the persecutors, glory for the saints. Mm-hmm. Why do they cause Paul to be constant in prayer for the Thessalonians? Well, Paul is
1: constant in prayer for them because they're not done being saved yet. They're still in danger. Um, you know, we, we don't see any evidence of, of anyone being prayed for once they get to heaven. Mm-hmm. There's no need for them. They, uh, there's, there's no need, uh, the, the, they're out of danger. But um, because of that, because the Thessalonian church, remember from 1 Thessalonians how anxious he was over the status of the Thessalonians and how concerned. And it wasn't until Timothy came with the favorable report that he was Hmm. certain that they were standing firm in the persecution. Well, persecution is not over yet. The battle's not done. The race isn't done being being run. And so because of this, uh, we constantly pray for you. And we want finally in the end God to count you worthy. So he uses that same expression that he did earlier. Mm -hmm. That you will be vindicated and validated in the end as having had a genuine faith. Because the faith that is genuine doesn't just begin but it perseveres to the end. Jesus said he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so he's praying that they will not fail. Mm -hmm. I prayed for you Simon that your faith will not fail. Jesus prayed that for Simon. Paul prays that for the Thessalonians. Oh God, don't let their faith fail. Let them keep running this race with endurance.
0: And it's a great thing for us to pray for one another as well, that we would carry on mm-hmm. uh, to the end. How should a passion for the glory of Jesus' name motivate all our good purposes and faith-filled acts? And What final thoughts do you have for us on this first chapter of 2 Thessalonians?
1: I love it. Now, I know you're looking at verse 12. Let me say one quick thing about verse 11. Would you mind reading the second half Mm -hmm. of verse 11 after may count you worthy of his calling?
0: And may fulfill every resolve for good Mm. and every work of faith by his power.
1: Okay, so I think he's meaning their resolves for good and their work of faith. And so a resolution, it's Mm. like, I want to do better. Mm. Well, may God fulfill that in you.
0: Yeah,
1: I'd like to memorize a book of the Bible. May God fulfill that resolution. I'd like to share the gospel with my neighbor. Hmm. May God fulfill that good resolution. Where do those resolutions and determinations come from? But a moving of the spirit. And so he's praying that they may, all of those good desires they have and their good resolutions and um, their good works that are like planting seeds, that may it produce a huge harvest. I love that in verse 11. And then he says uh, that we we want this to happen, that your good resolutions and your good works may be fulfilled by the power of God so that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So everything tends always to the glory of God. We know that that is the ultimate answer of why God does everything. And the idea is that Christ and through Christ, God the Father may be put on display as a radiant, glorious God, Mm -hmm. that he may be displayed And so that's the desire that he has. So to sum up, 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul is still intensely concerned about the Thessalonians. They're in a cauldron of persecution. He is greatly encouraged by the fact that they're standing firm. He knows they're standing firm only because God has been faithful to keep his promise to them, Mm. but they're not done with that. He does say, keep in mind that your persecutors, if they don't repent, will be crushed by the glory of God in the second coming of Christ. And they will be shut out of of heaven and be in eternal torment. And so be encouraged that God is just. This isn't gonna go on forever. In the meantime, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will fulfill all your resolutions and good works so that God may be maximally glorified in your life. That seems to be good for us as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, may we resolve to glorify God in our lives as we look forward to the coming of Christ. Well, this has been episode seven in our Thessalonians Bible study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode eight, where we'll discuss Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through seventeen. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from
1: twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non commercial purposes